0: As it's been uh, already said, uh, actually prayed from this pulpit this morning uh, by Michael, Uh, these are the words of God and we want to hear from God uh, this morning. So before we get into our text, why don't we come to our God and ask for his help. Father, you are the one who tells us, that your word never comes back void. So this morning, as we gather around your word, we ask that you would please hold Christ high in our midst and minister to us by your Holy Spirit. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I love about Armadale is the many different Christian ministries that have prayerfully considered how to reach this wonderful place uh, with the good news of Jesus Christ. And I mention this because when I first came to Armadale and started to meet some of the brilliant people who are on the ground here, I was under the impression that there was a ministry in our city called Habakkuk. And I thought to myself, what a wonderful ministry, because as we've seen in this book uh, so far, if you were here last week, a ministry with that name, well, it gives the impression that that's a place that you can go and be open and honest about all the things that's on your heart, where you can go and speak about what's on your mind, because that's exactly what we saw Habakkuk do with God last week. Well... I was quickly corrected that the place that I was thinking about wasn't called Habakkuk, but have a kappa, uh, which has now come to be known as Under His Wings. Uh, However, even though I got the name wrong, as I've come to know the people uh, who run that ministry, that's exactly what they're out to achieve and do. They're about getting people who are in dire circumstances Uh, to the right place to meet with the right person so they can pour their heart out and say what's on their mind, lament over the things in their life and do it in the context of being led to the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful ministry under his wings uh, done right here in our city. Now I'm saying all of this because that's exactly what we were encouraged in Last week, when Tom took us through the first part of the first chapter of this wonderful book uh, that we have before us this morning. It's there, uh, in one sense at least, uh, we learnt that we have a God who isn't aloof out there somewhere in the universe unaware of all our trials and tribulations, but is so personal with his people that we're invited to boldly come before the throne of grace and speak to him about everything that's going on in our lives. Why? Well, we're told by the Apostle Peter, it's because God cares for us. That's right, the creator of the universe... (laughs) The one who created time, who is eternal and sovereign over all things, not only invites us, but welcomes all his people to come to him and cast our cares upon him. Why? Well, it's as I just said, it's because God cares for us. And that's exactly what we saw last week with our prophet Habakkuk. A child of God, a man in the covenant community, going to his God and pouring his heart out to the only person in the universe who could really do something about what he was seeing around him. Now for Habakkuk, there were some serious things that he took to the throne of grace, namely the sin of God's own people. That's what we saw last week. This prophet who's like a go-between between uh, man and God's people, uh, he cried out to God about how long he was going uh, to have to wait before God did something about all the wickedness that he was witnessing in his nation. And, and I just want to say that I love that about the prophet Habakkuk because what we have here in this book is an example of a man who not just laments over the people of God, but somewhat intercedes for them, who cries out to God about all the wrong that he sees. In other words, he didn't just sit around thinking and complaining to himself and others about all the evil and injustice that he was witnessing, but took all his burdens and anger before God in the prayer closet. What a great example to us now here in the church, a great example of when we see things going on with people in the worldwide church. Well, how do we deal with it? Um, We take it to God in prayer. Now, he didn't uh, use the exact words that Jesus gave us, but it certainly rings of, may your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth As it is in heaven. That was essentially Habakkuk's complaint. The will of God, the law, was not being followed by God's own people. And because of that, there was wickedness and injustice that had spread through the covenant community like gangrene. In other words, God's word was not being obeyed in any sense. And it was causing God's very people to be ineffective and perverted. To say it plainly, uh, Judah had put a bowl over the light that they were meant to shine to the nations. And Habakkuk was furious. Now, as I said before, God is not aloof out there in the universe, no, not in any sense. And we saw that last week as God replied to our prophet, essentially saying, not only do I see what's going on, Habakkuk, but I actually have a solution for all of this. And that solution is the raising up of a nation that's even more lawless and infected with sin. That's right. God had... Not ignored the sin of his people in any sense, but had a solution. And that solution, for the time being at least, well, it was an even greater sinful nation that was on their way to sweep through the nation of Judah and deal with God's very own people. So with that said, uh, with that context and that understanding, let's go through our text this morning you have your bibles with you it'd be uh, very handy because we'll be in a, a lot this morning but look with me at verse 12 this is Habakkuk coming to God again uh, in a second prayer saying Lord are you not from everlasting my God my holy one you'll never die you Lord have appointed them to execute judgment you my rock have ordained them to punish So notice this, notice what Habakkuk reveals of God in his prayer. He reveals that God knows exactly what's going on with his people. And Habakkuk even shows, he shows us that because of the very nature of God, he is sovereign over not just his own people, but the entire world to the point that he's able to raise up a Gentile nation being the Babylonians, to punish Judah. To say it simply, uh, Habakkuk praises God that he's eternal and that he's sovereign, the ruler of nations, the king of kings, the lord of lords, and that he can do whatever he wants, not only with, but also in his creation. Uh, We see that in verse 12. Habakkuk praises God for his awesome wonder that he's both totally sovereign over all history and also totally involved in all history. But it's here that we see our prophet start to seriously wrestle with something in his own understanding of who God has revealed himself to be. Verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Hear that? God is sovereign, but he's also holy. And that's what Habakkuk is trying to wrap his head around here. On the one hand, God isn't ignoring sin. But on the other hand, he's raising up an even more sinful nation to deal with with the sin of his own people. You can hear the clocks ticking. Habakkuk's in the prayer closet going, thank you, Lord, that you're eternal, that you're sovereign, that you're not ignoring any of this that's going on with your people, uh, that you have a plan to deal with this, to get things back on track. But wait, Lord, you're holy. You, you can't stand the works of the wicked. You can't tolerate The treacherous ways of people. And wicked they are. Look at how Habakkuk illustrates uh, the Babylonians in verses 14 through to 17. You've made people like the fish of the sea. Like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls them up with his hooks, he catches them with his net, he gathers them with his dragnet, and he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Well, in other words, and to put a more modern spin on it, Habakkuk laments that God's people are like sitting ducks and wandering sheep without a shepherd. And that the wicked are going to come along and easily wipe them out. So much so, it's going to be like shooting fish in a barrel. Look at what else he has to say about the wicked. He says that they fill their nets to the brim, so much so that they empty them and start again. And because it comes at such ease for them, it's like the favor of the universe is on their side. And so they look to the tools of the trade as their very gods that bless them with all that they're doing. And so the question becomes in the mind of our prophet, are these wicked people going to get away with that forever? Well, I don't know about you, church, but this tension that we're seeing with our prophet here might not be so far removed from our own prayers in the prayer closet, right? I mean, we, we couldn't be any further in time and geography from the world of Habakkuk. But don't we wrestle with the very same tension that our prophet has here? I mean, on the one hand, we, we praise God that he is indeed so personal and so involved in his creation. That's a biblical truth that should bring us uh, so much peace and joy. God is not like some distant deity out there who has made a clock, who then wound it up and then just left it so that it could tick along without any personal involvement. No, we, we know that our God is personally involved in his world, because not only does he tell us that he is and we see it clearly here with the uh, rise of uh, the Babylonians in his hand in history but we also see it in the way that he tells us to come and speak to him and ask that things might change in his world ask that his kingdom come and his will be done ask that our sin would be forgiven ask that the Lord of the harvest might send out workers. The list goes on and on and on. And the sovereign eternal God of the universe tells us to do that because he's personally involved in his creation and wants his people to come to him and ask for things so that he might do them. He is personally involved in his creation He answers prayers, which means on the other hand that all the wicked and evil that we see in this world, all the pestilence, war, murder, disease, earthquakes and economic troubles, all the stuff going on uh, with the nations and in our personal worlds right now, well, that's all under his sovereign hand as well. And so as we go to the prayer closet and see the things of this world, well, on the one hand, we know that God is, is very much in control and we can rejoice in that. And we know that he, he listens to the prayers of his people. But on the other hand, we might wrestle with the knowledge that all is in his control. And wonder why he doesn't seem to be doing anything, and when he does, why it doesn't quite fit the way that we would go about it. We might even wonder will this wickedness and the wicked go on like this forever? Well, that's our prophet's dilemma here. He sees God as totally sovereign and eternal. He sees God as not aloof out there in the universe, but personally involved in his creation. So much so that Habakkuk wrestles with the very fact that God is going to deal with things in the way that he is. That's the tension that we have here. And I love that Habakkuk is wrestling this way with God. However, what he does next is brilliant. He kind of has this serious tension uh, in his understanding of God in the so-called prayer closet. But then notice what he says. I'll go stand my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I'll look and see what he has to say to me and what answer I'm to give to this complaint, chapter 2, verse 1. In other words, Habakkuk was so confident that God had heard his prayer That he was now going to wait on the Lord, which is a massive theme in our Bible. Wait on the Lord for his answer. Such a wonderful faith shown to us here in the face of mystery. We read on. The Lord replied. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. I heard it said the other day that with the rise of the newspaper in the Victorian era, uh, that when England used to sneeze, Europe got a cold. (laughs) Yet now, because of the rise of the internet, when America sneezes, the well gets pneumonia. And that's what God wants Habakkuk to do here. He wants, in effect, the nation of Judah to catch what has been said to him personally. Now, as you heard last week, God, uh, he used to speak by the prophets at different times and in various ways, and that's what we're seeing here. God had spoken to his man and he wants Habakkuk to publish clearly what had been revealed so that Judah could clearly understand what God had to say to them. Because it was paramount that they got his revelation. What did God want to tell his people through the prophet Habakkuk? Well, there's two things that we're going to look at this morning. First, he wants to tell them about the enemy. And second, he wants to tell him, wants to tell them, about what will happen to the enemy. So first, who is the enemy? And second, what will happen to the enemy? So first, who is this enemy? Well, we read about them clearly in verses 4 through to 5. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He's arrogant and never at rest because he's as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Okay, so there's a couple of subheadings for you note takers out there uh, under this first point of who the enemy is and we need to see this before we move on, it has to do with the language of what God has revealed. See, we might automatically cast our minds to this being exclusively about the Babylonians versus the Hebrews. And that this revelation was essentially God saying to his people, that the Babylonians that I'm rising, raising up, well, they're like this. But I want us to take note of the broadness of the language here. Yes, God is speaking about the Babylonians in one sense. However, we might ask the question, why was Habakkuk driven to his knees in the first place? Well, it was because God's own people had abandoned the law and become a wicked nation. That's what we see in the opening verses of this book. Habakkuk was driven to the prayer closet because he saw the law being ignored and conflict and strife escalating more and more among his own people. So it's not like the Hebrews are totally innocent here. Now, Habakkuk was living in a wicked nation among wicked people. In other words, no one was innocent. God's covenant nation had abandoned the law and was oppressing their own people. So Habakkuk, he cries out to God. So we might say that the application of the language around the enemy here well, it's broader than just the Babylonians. Something else that I want you to know, church, what is the enemy like? Well, it's, the enemy is set in contrast to those who live by faith, right? That's what we see in verse 4. The enemy is proud and his desires are not in accordance with the will of God. In other words, uh, they not only reject the word of God, but they desire what's contrary to it. And thus they are described as being not upright, which is to say they're crooked in the way that they live. And that's further described in verse 5 there. Well, compare that with the righteous person. Well, that's the person who has faith in God and his revelation And actually does something about it. He lives not by his fishing net, but by his faith. Or faithfulness, as the NIV puts it. All this to say, there's there's an essence of the psalmist's words uh, ringing here. Which reveal in Psalm 1, which we heard earlier this morning, that there are only two ways to live. One way is egocentric, prideful, rejecting our creator's revelation, and thus walking in a crooked and perverse way. Heaping up sin upon sin and never being satisfied. That's the wicked, that's the enemy of God. Over against the faithful one who who puts their trust in God and in his word and walks in accordance with the straight and narrow way. That's the blessed one. Doesn't that bring to mind the words of Paul to the Philippians when he said, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you, the people of God, shine like the stars of the world. How? Well, by holding firm to the word of life, Philippians two fourteen to 16. So Habakkuk, well, he's getting an answer to his prayer here. That is to reveal to others, and that's that God is sending a proud and arrogant nation, the Babylonians, to deal with them. And as we've seen, anyone who is puffed up and arrogant, anyone who rejects God and his ways is really God's enemy. Even, and hear this, even If you belong to the Hebrew nation. No, the one who receives the word of God and lives out their faith is righteous before God's eyes. But there's more. That's the first thing. That's who the enemy is. But what about the problem of evil in this world? What about the people who are the enemy of God? Will wickedness... And the wicked go on forever? Well, to that we get a resounding no. And that's the second thing God reveals here. The wicked, and in fact all wickedness, will come under the judgment of God. And they won't endure forever. Verse 6. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn? Now, if we're going to uh, be consistent here this morning... Uh, We want to take this all of them language, uh, not just as the oppressed Jews and nations who have been gobbled up by the Babylonians. However, that's certainly one way to understand it. And interestingly, Babylon will become an example of what happens to any nation and people that sets itself up against the people of God and God himself. But if we're going to be consistent in our view here, then what's being said is for the benefit of anyone at any time who has been oppressed by the wicked and thus wondered if the lawless will get away with it forever. Well, this is what God has to say. First, woe to those who have planned, plotted, and played out their wicked schemes on others. They will eventually fall prey to their own devices. It's like it says here in verses 6 to 8, those who plunder, those who pillage, will themselves come to ruin. In other words, it, it won't go on forever. Every evil person, and on a larger scale, every world empire that ruins others will come to ruin itself. It's as Jesus said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. We certainly see that in the narrative of history, don't we? Judah was indeed plundered by the Babylonians. However, in turn, Babylon was wiped out by the Persians. Greece by Rome. Rome by by barbarian tribes. The list goes on and on and on, and it will go on until the appointed time when God will judge the nations. Anyone who plunders and pillages others, well, it will come down on their heads one day. Second, woe to those who find their security in what they've unjustly built. We see that in verses 9 through to 11, and that's a theme that runs all throughout the Bible. Those who collect and store up treasures on this earth and find security in the things that they have uh, made dishonestly, uh, maybe from ripping off others and stealing from them. Well, their foolishness will testify against them one day. No house that is built upon the sand will last forever. It will be shown for what it is. Third, woe to the cruel And we see this in verses 12 through to 14. Anyone who treats other people's lives as cheap will come to nothing. Every single human being is made in the image of God and is precious to our creator. And so those who are are violent against them and build their own empires on the backs of others and cause others. People harm only fuel the fire of their own judgment. Verse 13 is clear. They will come to nothing. Fourth, woe to the immoral. It's right there in verses 15 through to 17. God does not turn a blind eye to those who exploit others in any which way. God hates the sin of those who encourage others to act in obscene ways. Especially when their victims have been manipulated and then abused and taunted. God's word's clear. Those people will come to shame and disgrace. Fifth and the final woe belongs to the idolatrous, verses 18 to 19. Now, what God is saying here is that all idols that are carved by the hands of mere men, well, they're utterly useless. And we might look back into the ancient world and think, well, I don't burn incense and carve out little wooden figures and sit and pray to things. But all of those things are only a product of a crooked heart. And so though we might not see those things so much in our Western world, uh, the point is clear. Anything other than God that we put our trust and hope in that replaces our faith in God, well, it's become a functional saviour. And and that functional saviour will be shown for what it is one day. And that's no saviour at all. Extremely heavy stuff. God's revelation, God's words to God's people. And we could spend so much more time on this. However, I'm aware of... um, our time this morning. And so I want to end by saying this. Though we've seen our prophets struggle to keep in tension the sovereignty of God and the way that he is going to deal with sin, one thing is made clear in all of this. And it's so important that we see it. It's so important. God is not just speaking about a a particular nation and people here. This isn't just the Babylonians and Jews on view here, but God revealing through his eternal word that though we might not understand all the mysteries of the universe and God's way of dealing with things, though we might not understand all the wicked empires that come and go, all the lawless people in this world that seem to be doing so great all the evil that seems to prevail at every turn. Well, through it all, we must remember this. The righteous will live by their faith. That is so important that you hear that this morning, brothers and sisters. God's response to Habakkuk's prayer, to his struggle, to his complaint and lament is that God is not unaware about it all, not indifferent, not aloof. But is going to deal with it all. However, though we might not see it clearly or understand it all our end, remember this, the righteous one will live because they have faith in God. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul draws on in his explanation of how one ultimately comes to be saved. You see, we're told in the book of Romans that Because of the holy justice of God, all sin is going to be punished one day. That's what the holiness and the justice of God demands, that all sin is punished. However, we have a massive problem. All people are guilty. All people are guilty of breaking the law of God of being somewhat included in those woes that we just heard. We have a massive dilemma on our hands as no one is righteous before God and worthy to be punished, worthy of the judgment and wrath. But this is the good news of Jesus Christ, says Paul in Romans 3.28. It's this, a person is justified by faith. Hear that. A a person is made in total right standing with God by who they trust in. That's Paul's argument in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. One cannot be right standing, justified, justified, never sinned before God except by faith and faith alone in him. So it's a little wonder that Paul draws directly on what Habakkuk reveals here and drives home what has always been true for the people of God over the two testaments. The righteous will live by faith, Romans 17. Church, for those in the old, it was to look forward, and for us in the new, we look back to the cross of Jesus Christ. This was and is and always will be God's solution to the problem of wickedness in this world. God's wrath was poured out upon all wickedness of humanity at Calvary so that God's holy justice and merciful love might be both demonstrated and satisfied. And the good news is this. All those who trust in that sacrifice will be justified. So we might say in the fullness of God's revelation, the righteous will live by faith in Jesus Christ. Church, it's by faith that we are saved, and it's by faith that we live. But might I also say a great expression of our faith is in the way in which we pray. See, we observe an incredible thing with Habakkuk. His faith and his trust caused him to get to the so-called prayer closet and cry out. And so here in these verses that we have seen this morning, might I say that when, not if, when we see the effects of wickedness, either out there in the world, in the church, or even in our own lives. Don't run from, but run to the God of heaven. He is sovereign over all the earth, says verse 20. And yet, as we've also seen, he not only hears our prayers, he answers them. Now, we might not understand everything that's going on. We might not like God's timing or even fully comprehend his ways. But here in our passage this morning, in God's words to us, we see that though we might not understand everything, we're invited to come to the one who knows exactly what's going on and exactly what he is doing with and in his creation. And brothers and sisters, no more clearly do we see this than in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and how God determined to use lawless people to nail his perfect son to a cross so that the problem of our wickedness could be ultimately dealt with. It's because of God working sovereignly over and in history that we can now approach him in his holiness. So church, let's learn to wrestle with God in the prayer closet. To be consistent in going to him with all our concerns, all our laments, all our questions. That's the invite from the king of heaven and all the earth to anyone who has put their trust in Christ and lives by that wonderful gift of faith. And know this, whatever is going on in your world, whatever is going on in my world, in the world, we are told by the one who is in control of it all that there will come a day when all wickedness will be swallowed up in victory and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Might these words from the Apostle Paul encourage us all this morning. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Let's come to our great God in prayer now. Father, we began our time this morning by asking that our Lord and Saviour would be held high among, our, among us this morning. That by the work of your Spirit through the Word, that you would draw all manner of people to our Lord and Saviour. Father, we are in various and varying degrees of life in this room at the moment. Some of us are questioning, some of us maybe angry, some of us incredibly hurt, some of us with our heads so spun around that we can't make heads or tails of anything. But Father, as we hear your word proclaimed this morning, you are the one who invites us to come to you. Father, might we see that for what it is, that we are welcomed, that we are not a nuisance, that you love your people. Father, we don't want to become a church that abandons your word. We don't want to be a church that puts a bowl over the light that is here. So, Father, we ask for wisdom and guidance that you would lead us all the days of our life and that Christ would be preached boldly from this place. Father, we thank you for your work. In Jesus' name, amen.